this morning. I brought props, so bear with me just for a second. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Cain Bay, and we are so excited that you're here. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us this morning, uh, gosh, we're just really blessed that you decided to join us. Uh, how many of you were at 4th of July? 4th of July, Independence of Cain Bay? Anybody 4th of July? Yes! Incredible! Okay, so I spent some time with the fireworks guys beforehand, and literally, uh, they had fireworks stacked in the back of a moving truck. And they opened the, the back of the moving truck, and there's all these fireworks back there, and it was incredible. I was blown away. It was like Operation Christmas Child for rednecks. It was fantastic. <laughs> Uh, had such a good time out at uh, Independence at Cane Bay, and we are so excited that you guys are here with us this morning. All right, I'm going to start this morning a little bit different than, than we usually start, and, and I'm going to need something from you, okay? This is going to be a little bit of a give and take. Normally, you come to church, and it's like, just preach at me, but I'm gonna, it's going to be a little bit of a give and take here this morning uh, as we start the message, okay? So here's what I'm asking of you. Uh, I'm asking for honesty, okay, honesty and participation, Okay, so if I can get some honesty and some participation, things are going to go great. If I don't get honesty or participation, then we'll handle that. We'll take care of that when the time comes. All right, so here's, I need honesty and participation from you this morning, okay? So let's, let's start with an easy one, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work our way through. So uh, is anybody in here a uh, South Carolina Gamecock fan? Anybody? Okay, raise your hand. There you go. Okay, awesome. There, yeah. Anybody in here a Clemson Tiger fan? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you guys. All right. Anybody in here not care about either one of those teams? Okay, all right, look at that. There you go. Okay, we're off to a good start here. We're off to a great start, okay? Um, How many of you were brought up, okay, how many of you were brought up in a Christian home? Like where your parents talked about Jesus, they took you to church, you went to VBS, you did the whole thing, okay? Great, look around the room, a lot of people. How many of you guys were brought up in a non-Christian home, a home where people didn't talk about Jesus, there wasn't really a whole lot about God? Yeah, yeah, don't, don't be, yeah. Okay, so several of you, hands all over the building. How many of you guys were brought up in a Christian home, but maybe once you got into high school or college, you kind of rebelled a little bit, kind of pushed the limits a little bit, okay, and got out of it? Yeah, okay, some of you guys, awesome. Some of you guys are like, man, my kids are here, dude. Just take that, you know, take that easy, okay? Honesty and participation is good car ride home. How many of you guys, uh, your parents are still happily married? Parents still happily married? Okay. How many of you come from uh, families of divorce? How many of you have families who are divorced? Okay. All right. A lot of you. How many of you, your parents are still married, but maybe not happily? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Some of you are like, my parents are here, dude. Come on. Just take that. All right. We're doing great. You guys are doing great. How many of you guys, um, it, it, those of you that are, that are believers in Christ, how many of you became a believer as, as a child, like 10 years or okay? How many of you became a believer as a teenager? Am I a teenager? Okay. After 20 years old? Anybody after 20? Okay. Yeah, a lot of you. After 30? Anybody here after 30 years old became a believer? Awesome. That's, that's incredible. Incredible. How many of you were born in the South? Anybody born in the South in here? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, how many of you were born not in the South? That's me. Uh, I'm, I was not born in the South. Like the bumper sticker says, got here as fast as I could. You know, that. that. <laughs> how many of you guys were born internationally? Anybody born internationally? Born uh, overseas? Yeah, great. Fantastic. So, so a whole lot of this going on. How many of you were born in, into a, um, maybe growing up, you, you went to church and, and you were born in like a Baptist or Methodist tradition? Okay. So how many of you were born in like Catholic, came, grew up Catholic? Maybe some of you grew up with, with you know, in, in a different tradition, maybe like a, a Jehovah's Witness or, or something like that. Anybody in here that grew up? Yeah, that way. Okay. So what I wanted to do through this little survey this morning, you guys see we're all over the board on all these different things. There's a myth that only a certain type of person becomes a Christian. 
There's a myth out there that only a certain type of person is going to become a Christian. That Jesus is only interested in saving white, middle-class, Republican Americans. And what I wanted you to just see there is through that survey that we're all over the board. That we've got people in this room, in just this room of a hundred or so, that come from all different walks and environments and different types of, uh, of backgrounds. And, and so we've seen just in this room of a hundred people that there's not one type or prototype person that Jesus has saved. So you can imagine if you expand that from this room of just a hundred into um, however many people that there are that are Christians today, you can begin to see that there's not one single type of person that Jesus has called out of death and into life. And that's very important for us to see this morning. There's not a prototypical Christian. As much as um, our culture and as much as maybe the media and as much as other people kind of want to force that on you, that there's a prototypical person that becomes a Christian, we've just defeated that, that myth this morning in about five minutes in this room. So this morning, maybe you came here for the first time and maybe you're not a believer in Jesus. Maybe you just showed up because man, we put on a, it was a great community event and you saw all this stuff about church at Cane Bay and just were kind of interested. And, and I don't know where you are on your journey this morning, but I want you to understand something. Jesus this morning desires to have a relationship with every single person in this room. And there is no one in this room who is outside of the truth that Jesus died for you, loves you, and wants to save you. Nobody. Nobody is exempt from that. There's nobody in here who goes, well, I'm just not the, you know, I'm just not a, a good enough person, or I'm not that type of person. I'm not a church person. I'm not a Jesus person. This morning as unlikely of a candidate for salvation as you think that you may be, I want to show you that Jesus this morning can absolutely positively change your life if you allow him to. So let's look at the Bible this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to John chapter four. If you don't have a Bible with you, okay, it's going to be on the screen. We've, we've tried to put the scripture in front of you in two different places. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And also, if you look inside your worship guide, um, on the backside of that little insert in there is, is all the scripture. Now, some of you guys are looking at that and you're going, my gosh, we're going to be here until Tuesday. Don't freak out. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly this morning. But this is an incredible story in the gospel of John about someone who is an unlikely candidate to meet Jesus and how Jesus kind of passionately and intentionally pursues this woman uh, unto salvation. So if you've got your Bible, John chapter four, we're going to start in verse one. And I'm going to read through this and I'm going to stop uh, every couple of verses and, and draw some things out and, and, and we'll, we'll keep moving through. Okay. So let's look John chapter four, starting in verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, G that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. I, I think so. I'm not, don't understand that one. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth 
hour. Now, before we go any further, let me give you a little bit of Old Testament history, okay? If you know anything about the Bible, you've got two Testaments. You've got the Old Testament, which is the story of of pointing to the coming of Jesus. You've got the New Testament, the Gospels that tell us about Jesus, and the rest of the New Testament that points back to Jesus. So in the Old Testament, we read um, about a king by the name of David, okay? It's a great name for a king. He was the Jewish king. Some of you guys got that. It's okay. Uh, rest of you, it's all right, catch up. Uh, So David becomes king of the Jews. Everybody knows David, David and Goliath, okay? David becomes king of the Jews, and he establishes the capital, the Jewish capital, as the city of Jerusalem. And David reigns over Jerusalem. And then, after David dies, his son Solomon becomes the king of the Jews. Now, during Solomon's reign, Uh, Solomon builds a temple to the Lord in Jerusalem, a huge ornate temple uh, in the middle of Jerusalem that is where the presence of God resided among his people. Now, later in Solomon's reign, Solomon's kingdom will actually be divided up into two kingdoms. You'll have the northern kingdom that is called Israel, and you'll have the southern kingdom that is called Judah. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, And in the northern kingdom of Israel, they make Samaria their capital. It's all very Game of Thrones. You'll you'll figure it out. So it's Samaria as the capital of Israel, Jerusalem as the capital of Judah. Now in 722 BC, the country of Assyria, the, the Assyrians, attack and conquer Israel. And they take Samaria, the capital of Israel. And what they do is they deport all of the Jews or most of the Jews out of Israel, but several of the Jews remain. And what begins to happen is the Assyrians and the Israelites begin to intermarry. And as generations begin to come, they form a new group of people called the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are half Jew, half Assyrian. And as it sort of happens when cultures mingle, all of these things kind of become, um, all of these different things kind of start to happen. Uh, one of the things is, is the Israelites move away from um, the religion of their fathers in the Old Testament. that talks about the God of the Jews. And they start to uh, create a new religion where they only believe the five, first five books of the Bible called the Torah. And they disregard any of the other writings by the prophets, the psalmists, anything like that. They disregard anything that names Jerusalem as the place where the people are to worship. Now, for the Jews living in Judah, this makes them extremely angry. And they begin to disregard the Samaritans as um, lesser peoples. They begin to, they see the Samaritans as half-bred heretics. So there's a lot of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. So much so that the Jews had wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans unless it was some sort of business dealing. So much so that when a Jew would have to go north, they would not pass through Samaria to get where they needed to go. They would take the long way around Samaria because they felt that even if they walked through Samaria, that they might somehow become unclean. So we've established this tension now between the Jews and the Samaritans. But here we see in John chapter 4, Jesus with his disciples, all Jewish men, plowing right through the middle of Samaria. 
says that Jesus is on his way from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and he goes right through Judea, and it says that he, or right through Samaria, and it says that he sits at a well at about the sixth hour. I love that. There's just this little hint verse there where it says Jesus wearied from his travel. Sometimes we think that Jesus, when he was on earth, kind of rode on this cloud and kind of floated. You know, we, we get that from pictures of Jesus where he's white, and he's got feathered hair and a sash, and he's passing out suckers to children. Like we see Jesus was a, an actual man. And it says that he was tired from his journey and he sits at a well in Samaria. This well was dug by Jacob way back in Genesis. You can actually read the the passage where Jacob digs this well. So Jesus sits at the well. It's about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is not 6 a.m. It's noon. Middle of the day, hot. Here's Jesus at the well. Let's move on. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this, on, on a cursory reading, isn't really that strange. But if you put it in the context of the first century, this is a very, very abnormal situation. So number one, Jesus sitting at the well in the middle of the day, heat of the day, noon, here comes a woman by herself to the well. Now this is abnormal because after you understand, if you know anything about the Middle East, anything about the desert, in the middle of the day, it's pretty hot. So what women would do is they would come together in groups to the well at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, and they would miss all of the heat. They would come at the beginning to get the water that they needed for cooking, for cleaning, for all these different things, or they would come at the very end of the day to to get the same water. So for a woman to come alone to the well at the heat of the day is very significant because it says that she is somehow ostracized from the other women in her city or in her community. And she is also doing everything she can to avoid them. She is going to the well at noon when she knows nobody is going to be there so that she can draw her own water. You ever been to Waffle House at like three o'clock in the afternoon? Ain't nobody there. Nobody's like Waffle House at three o'clock in the afternoon. You go to Waffle House at three in the morning, it's slammed. (laughs) Same kind of deal here. Woman goes in the middle of the day when she knows that nobody is going to be here. But what she finds is a Jewish man sitting at the well. And the Jewish man says to her, give me a drink. This crosses all sorts of cultural and traditional boundaries. Culturally, Jew and Samaritan, they don't have any dealings with each other. Okay, except for maybe business dealings. Right? But for a Jewish man to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink is culturally uh, uh, abnormal. Now, we already are dealing with a little bit of this man and woman thing where women in this time were considered uh, second-class citizens by men. So for a man to ask a woman for a drink, but then for a Jewish man to ask a Samaritan for a drink, that's crazy. Jews didn't drink after Samaritans. They didn't have any idea what that Samaritan might be able to give them. They had no idea. So for Jesus to say to this woman, give me a drink, is a huge, abnormal, cultural situation. So already here in the beginning of this first seven, nine verses of this passage, we've got some sort of tension here. Jesus asking this woman for a drink. And the woman says, why would you ask me for a drink? You know how this works. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. 
Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus, woman says, who are you to ask me for a drink? This, this is crossing all sorts of social boundaries, okay? Who are you to ask me for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink. It's all very kind of, you know, what's he really saying here? Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water and I would give you living water. Um, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and a couple years ago, uh, the Cincinnati Bengals had a um, wide receiver. Uh, they've since cut him, and he's been to prison. You know, good stuff. Uh, they had a receiver by the name of Chad Johnson. He changed his name later to Chad Ochocinco. And I actually was in a movie theater one time, and Chad Johnson was sitting on a bench uh, outside of a movie. And, and I was, my cousin and I were big Bengals fans, and it was this big kind of thing for us. And we were like, oh, my gosh, it's Chad Johnson. So we kind of geeked out a little bit and went over and talked to him, and he was real cool. But a movie let out as we were talking to Chad Johnson. And I kid you not, walking out of the theater is, 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 a, is a father and a son, both of whom are wearing Chad Johnson jerseys. And we're standing there, and they walk right by him. They're wearing this guy's jersey, and there's no, they, you know, and I just wanted to be like, you know who that, you're wearing that guy's shirt. Like, you, like that's, that's him right there. That, that's him. No idea. Totally oblivious to who he was. Same kind of thing's happening here with Jesus. The woman goes, who are you to ask me for a drink? And Jesus goes, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I'd give you living water. The woman's kind of confused. Jesus is talking about water for your soul. He's not talking about physical water anymore. He's talking about water for this woman's soul. Whether you know it or not, you probably do. As you get older, you start to notice these things. You and I were born with thirsty souls. You and I were born with thirsty souls. And we thirst after things to satisfy us. That's why when we get older, we start to pursue careers and money and relationships and all of these things because we feel like we have to have something in our life that gives us some sense of purpose, that satisfies whatever this innate desire is in us to belong or to have a purpose. We are born with thirsty souls that will not be satisfied by anything other than living Water And Jesus says, if you knew who I was and who was asking you for a drink, you'd ask me and I would give you living water. I would satisfy your soul. Now, the woman doesn't get this. You can see by the next question that she asks. She goes, yeah, what are you going to get this uh, living water with? You, you don't have anything to draw from. See, normally uh, a well was very, very deep. This well, Jacob's well, was probably 100 feet deep. And the woman would come with, with some sort of bucket or some sort of uh, something to carry the water in. And she would put it on a rope and she would dip it down into the well and she would bring it back up. Jesus, sitting here at the well, has nothing in his hands. And he's going, I'd give you living water. And she goes, in what? 
how are you going to get 100 feet down into the well and, and, and cup it and splash it out? What are you going to do? She goes, I don't understand. How are you going to draw this? She asks a logistical question. She doesn't understand that Jesus is no longer talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about water for her soul. And then she says this question. Our father Jacob dug this well, and are you greater than he is? See, the Samaritans knew who Jacob was. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He was one of their, the fathers of their early religion. And Jacob dug this well out. So it was a place that was sacred to the people. And he says, Jacob dug this well. Are you going to be the, are you greater than our father Jacob who drank from this well himself? And I love the way that Jesus responds to the woman. Jesus says, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He says, you want to drink Jacob's water? It's good. Jacob dug this well. It's been here for thousands of years, and it's great. He says, but if you dip water out of Jacob's well and you drink of it, you're going to have to come back to this well and get more water later because it doesn't satisfy eternally. It's temporal satisfaction. He says, but if anybody will drink of the water that I'll give them, they'll never be thirsty again, and that water will become a spring of life inside of them that wells up to eternal life. Jesus basically says to the woman, listen. I've got what you need to satisfy your soul. And the water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. Your soul will be satisfied. And that satisfaction will well up in your heart into eternal life. Jesus is saying, not only can I provide for your satisfaction through this life, but into the next life as well. He says, it'll well up you, well up in you into eternal life. And the woman's response is fascinating. On two levels. One, what does she say? She says, sir, give me this water. She says, I want that water. And she says she wants it for two reasons. She says, one, so that I will not, will no longer thirst. She says, give me that water because I don't want to thirst anymore. She goes, I, I don't, I don't want to thirst. I want to be satisfied. I don't want to be chasing after things that don't matter. Give me that water so that I will no longer thirst. And the second one is even more fascinating that sometimes we look over. She says, and so that I won't have to come to this well to draw water again. The well for this woman probably represented a lot of different things. She can't come to the well in a group. She's obviously been ostracized from her community. She's an outcast of sorts. She's probably walking in her shame every single day. And she says, when I come back here, it just reminds me of who I am. And it reminds me of what I've done. And if you can give me water that will satisfy and make sure that I never have to come back to this place again, then I will take it. She doesn't want to come back to the well. She doesn't want to come back to the well. In the next passage of scripture, we see why Jesus begins to peel back some of the layers of this woman's heart. In verse 16, Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the man you live with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus pinpoints immediately that the, maybe the source of this woman's hurt. 
and the source of this woman's shame. And he says, go call your husband. And the woman tries to shut him down. Okay. You ever been in a conversation where you kind of breach a topic and somebody just shuts you down automatically and you're like, whoa, okay, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, I guess. We'll move on. Rained a lot recently. You know, uh, like you ever been in that situation? Like Jesus says, go call your husband. And the woman goes, I don't have a husband. Okay. She's trying to shut this thing down. She's trying to wall this section of her heart off because all of a sudden Jesus has touched on something that this woman probably doesn't want to talk about. She doesn't want to deal with. So she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Now, Jesus is not saying this in a condemning way. He's not saying this like, yeah, I know. You never been like, yeah, I know you don't have a husband. I'm Jesus. I figured that out. I made your brain. saw that. He's saying this in a very graceful way. He's going, I know. What you said is true. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man that you're living with now is not your husband husband. He pinpoints the source, this woman's probably some of her shame and some of her hurt and some of her longing. You imagine that? You imagine if you just walked up to some, some cat walked up to you at Target and was just like, Hey, how you doing? You start a conversation. It's kind of strange. And then all of a sudden he like pinpoints like the biggest, deepest source of your hurt and wounding and shame. Like that one thing that maybe only you know about, or that one thing that wounded you deeper than anything else or hurt you more than anybody else. And this stranger just goes, yeah, I know about that. You'd be a little bit freaked out by that. Maybe just, maybe just mildly. I would be. I, I, don't, I would be incredibly freaked out by this. And, and probably do what the woman did, try to shut it down and try to move it away and try to be like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you do. And, and, and then there's this and this and this. Jesus, in this moment, shows that he knows the woman deeper than she could ever imagine that he knew her. He's breaking down this wall and this facade that goes, oh, yeah, things are great. Things are, things are good, you know, uh, Jesus goes, no, 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 I I know about that. I know about that hurt. I know about that wound. I know about that sin. I know about that shame. He says, I know about that. And he pursues and calls the woman anyway. That's, That's grace, man. We're really good about this in church, you know. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great nobody's really, we, we, we struggle sometimes with transparency in church. Nobody wants to admit, man, I, I've had a terrible week. Or man, I'm really hurting over this. Or I'm really wounded over this. And, and, and eventually, I think we try to even hide it from, from God. Like God doesn't know the things that are going on in our life. Too blessed to be stressed, brother. Really, are you? The woman here, she, she's trying to stiff arm Jesus a little bit and going, yeah, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is going, no, I, I know. And he's identifying immediately, hey, I know the deepest part of you. I know your shame. I know your hurt. I know your wounds. And he's calling her anyway. Look what the woman tried to, tries to do in 16. I'm sorry, in um, 19. Woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, that's a great response. All right, that's a, that's a great response. I can tell that you're a mind reader. Then she does this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see what the woman tries to do there at the beginning? She tries to misdirect, okay? Jesus has identified the source of her pain, the source of her hurt, a deep wound in her heart. And she goes, tell it to your mind, reader. Where should we worship? Completely changes the subject. I do this to my wife all the time. You do the dishes? Man, our grass is getting real high. You know, like it's a misdirect. It's a changing of the subject. She's trying now to steer this ship back to where it needs to go. She's trying to steer this, this ship out of deep waters that Jesus has just pushed her into. She's going, you know, the Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, but my people say that we should worship here on this mountain. Where do you think we should worship? And Jesus goes, woman, there's coming a day when it's not going to matter whether you worship in Jerusalem or you worship on this mountain. There's coming a day when God's presence is not going to be confined by culture and it's not going to be confined by social constructs and it's not going to be confined by ethnicity and it's not going to be confined by all of these boxes that we've created to try to keep God in. And Jesus goes, there's coming a day. And God is now seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Because to Jesus, the where of the worship is not nearly as important as the who and the how of worship. To Jesus, the where of the worship is not nearly as important as the who and the how of worship. And that is great news for a church that meets in an elementary school. See, the woman tries to misdirect by bringing this up, by saying, by by redirecting the question to, to being a question about worship. When the question earlier was about worship. When Jesus says, Go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, I know you have five. The man you're with now is not, a hus- is not your husband. That's a question of worship. Because we worship what satisfies our souls. We worship what we think is going to satisfy our souls on the deepest level. And this woman had run from man to man to relationship to relationship, seeking something that would satisfy her soul. And she was on the sixth time and it wasn't working. And Jesus is going, it's a question of worship. Jesus is going, I'm not offering you another man. I'm offering you God. And it's only in God that you're going to find the satisfaction of your, sh- of your soul. The question about the husband was about worship. The woman tries to redirect it to be about worship. And Jesus goes, you know what? It's all about worship. He says, it's all about worship. Then he says this thing. He says, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Because you can't worship unless you worship in spirit and in truth. Okay? When Jesus says you worship in spirit, it means that we worship God from the deepest parts of our being. It means that we worship God. It's tied to our very being. It's not just this kind of external praise. It is a deep-founded worship, declaring that God is valuable, that he is supreme, and that we are satisfied alone in him. That's worshiping God in spirit. And then we worship him in truth. We worship God rightly. We worship the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. He says you worship in spirit and in truth. He says, if you worship in spirit, but without truth, it's just aimless passion. If I said to myself, I want to go to the beach, can't wait to go to the beach, would love to go to the beach. I love the beach. And I got in my car and I started driving west. No matter how passionate I was about going to the beach, I'm not doing what? Not getting there. 
Some of you guys are like, eventually you would get there. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aimless. I can be as excited about the beach as I can, but if I don't have the right direction, if I'm not going in the right way, I'm never going to find what I'm looking for. That's worshiping in spirit without truth. And then truth without spirit, it's just cold knowledge. If I, if I came home uh, to my wife today and I brought her flowers and I said, I, uh, here, here, and I hold out the flowers to her and she's like, oh, thank you. Why did you do this? And I said to her, because you're my wife and I should. Well, yes, she is my wife and I should give her gifts as my wife. But I, I'm giving her something out of my love for her. If I say, babe, I, I want to do this because I want to love you and honor you and serve you. That's so much better than me just going, well, it's because you're my wife and I should. That's worshiping with truth without spirit. Jesus says you've got to have both. You've got to have this deep-founded passion for God and truth and the right direct of knowing who we're worshiping. Let's look at this last part. Look how this finishes up. The woman says, Sir, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman's starting to get the picture now. She goes, I, I know the Messiah's coming. I know that the, the Christ is going to come and he's going to reveal all these things to us. And Jesus goes, guess what? Right here. Right, this guy, right here. Who has two thumbs and is the Messiah? This guy. Right. I don't know if he did that. That's just how my mind works. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. If you skip down to 39, it says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because what you have said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You notice what the woman does? Jesus says, I'm the Christ, and the disciples come back. What does she do? She drops her water jar, and she runs into town. She drops the reason that she originally came to the well, and she runs towards the people that she's been trying so hard to avoid. Why? Because when you meet with Jesus, your life is going to change. All of a sudden, things that seem really important aren't that important anymore. All of a sudden, the people you've been afraid to face, maybe it's not as scary anymore. You can go in and she says, come and see Jesus. The people of the town probably looked at this woman and thought, oh, here we go. Here she comes. And this woman goes, no, 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 no. Come and see a man who told me that everything that I've ever done. And she brings people to Jesus. The woman came to the well, ostracized and sinful, and she is now changed, redeemed by Jesus, and she is leading others to restoration in him. What an incredible story of forgiveness, of grace, of redemption that Jesus offers this woman. And you know what? He offers the same story of grace and redemption to you this morning. It's three things that Jesus offers the woman that he offers you this morning. First thing that he does, he offers the woman peace. He offers the woman peace. There's this cultural construct. There's this, this battle between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus comes to the woman and he offers her peace. He breaks down the cultural, the social, the moral boundaries between Jesus and this woman. He says, you know what? You, I'm, I'm, you come to me. I'm calling you to come to me. He says, I know you on a deeper level than you know yourself. I know that you've been warring against God up to this point, but I'm calling you today to come to me and drink of the water that brings peace and brings joy. 
Some of you guys came in here this morning warring against God, hiding that one spot or that, that lifetime of shame, of regret. And Jesus says, if you'll come to the well this morning, I offer you peace, offer you joy, offer you living water, satisfaction from your soul. Things that you've been chasing before, we're going to put those away and I'm going to offer you something that brings life. And that's the second thing the woman, that Jesus offers the woman. He offers her life. He offers you and I life today. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That means that you not just have life, but you have incredible life. Now that doesn't mean your best life now, that God's gonna make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, but it means that he's gonna give you joy and he's gonna give you eternal life and a life that lasts not just this 70 years that maybe we get on this planet, but lasts into eternity. Jesus doesn't offer happiness, he offers joy. Happiness can be taken away in a phone call. Joy can never be taken away from you because it's founded in who Jesus Christ is. He offers the woman life. So I bought these flowers. Um, Same day. I don't know if you guys can see this. I bought them the same day, same store, the same brand of flower, put them in the same place in my house. One of them is dead One of them is alive. One of them flourishes. One of them is decaying right now as we speak. What's the difference in these two things? Water. It's water. The only difference in these two groups of flowers is water. Some of you this morning walked in here. You live in the same neighborhoods. You work the same jobs. You grew up in the similar environments. One of you, your soul is flourishing and the other, your soul is decaying and the only difference is living water. Because one of you knows Jesus and knows the joy and the peace and the life that he brings and one of you is chasing after. Ecclesiastes says we're striving after the wind. We're chasing after something we're never gonna catch. We're taking big gulps of seawater to try to quench our thirst and all that it's doing is it's drying up everything inside of us and it's making us more thirsty. Jesus offers living water. He says, come to me and your soul will be satisfied. He offers a woman peace. He offers her life. Last thing, he offers her is freedom. He offers her freedom from her life of sin, guilt, and shame. She's come to the well. She goes, don't make me ever come back here. And I don't want to face these people. I'm so ashamed. I'm so guilt-ridden. And by the end, when she meets with Jesus, she's running headlong to tell them about who Jesus is. What an incredible, drastic change because when your chains of slavery and of sin have been dropped, you don't live the way that you used to live. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ set us free, so no longer be burdened to the yoke of slavery. He says, if Jesus has set you free, you don't have to live like you're in sin. You don't have to live like you're in shame. You don't have to live like this regretful woman that she lived this way for all the years of her life. And that morning when she went to the well, she had no idea that her life was about to change. And this morning, you may have walked in here having no idea that your life was about to change, but Jesus is offering you peace, life, and freedom if you'll accept it this morning. The same Jesus that offers these things to the woman offers it to you. The same Jesus that offers this living water to this woman offers it to you this morning. What are you going to do? Um, I, if you guys would bow your heads, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And um, So I don't know how you, how you came in this morning. I don't know 
what your life has looked like up to this point. Maybe you came in here this morning and you just said, I, maybe this was your kind of last ditch effort to try to find something to, to satisfy your soul. And I, I don't know what that looks like. But I do know that you're not here this morning by accident. I, I do know that whether you think that maybe how you got here this morning, I, I know for a fact that you're not here by accident. That Jesus is pursuing you, that he's called you into this place this morning. And he offers you freedom. And he offers you peace. And he offers you life. So, so here's what I'm going to do. If, if everybody in here would just kind of bow their heads, close their eyes, we're just going to take a position of reverence and prayer for a moment. So this morning, if, if you would just be honest and just say, you know what? Um, I, I came in here this morning and man, I, I'm looking for something and I've been chasing after things to satisfy my soul and, and it just seems like nothing's working. Like, I think something's going to work and then I attain it or I get to it and it just, just never pays off. And when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about Jesus giving this living water, man, I, I want to know about that. I, I want to know about this living water that Jesus offers. I want to know about this satisfaction, this deep satisfaction of the soul. I want to know about this joy. I want to know about this life. I want to know about this peace. I want to know about this freedom from guilt and shame and regret and all the things that I've maybe walked in here carrying this morning. That's you this morning. You've never never come to Jesus before. You've never made a profession of faith before. Maybe never seriously. If you're in here this morning, nobody looking around, nobody, if you just slip your hand up so I could see, so I could pray. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer you a time now, a song of response. The band's going to play and and sing, and we're going to offer you a time to respond. I, I'm going to be in the back. A couple of our other pastors are going to be in the back. And we would love to talk to you about life, peace, and freedom that Jesus offers you. The water that satisfies your soul. Jesus, we love you. We give all honor and glory and praise to you, Father. Thank you that you came after us. God, when we weren't looking for you, thank you that you find us, Father, sometimes at the bottom of our lives. God, when we were striving after the wind, we were chasing after things that couldn't satisfy, that couldn't resolve this tension in our hearts, Father, you found us and you drew us to yourself. Father, and through Jesus this morning, through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave that we celebrate, God, you can give us new life. So, Father, I pray this morning for maybe the, the man or woman who walked in here, God, and they're just, there's just war going on inside their soul, God. I pray that you would bring peace. I pray that you would reveal to them through that, God, that you're pursuing them, that you're calling them. God, that you're offering living water. Father, for the Christian in here, God, who maybe is just battling, fighting this uphill battle against sin and shame and temptation. Father, I pray that you would just remind them of the freedom that you've given them in Christ. God, that they would fight the battle knowing that it has already been won by Jesus. 
Father, that we would no longer try to just fight the battle of our own willpower, but God, we would fight in your strength. Thank you for what you're doing in hearts and lives. We pray that our worship be honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.